The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You don't check their papers. You don't act as CBP officers. You get vulnerable people who are at threat of death onto planes to a third country where you then evaluate, you know, which process, which particular avenue they're going to come through. After leaving Vietnam in 1975, we got 130,000 Vietnamese evacuees to Guam, and then we processed them on that state before they moved on. This needs to be considered at that level, if not more problematic, because there's no water option to get people out. There's only flights. So that airport is the way out because most borders are closed. So this is when we mean you think of Saigon, think of this as a moment that we'll look back and there will be a new name for evacuations when the U.S. withdraws from a country. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare podcast for August 20th, 2021. The city of Kabul's international airport has become the unlikely focal point of an unprecedented humanitarian effort, as U.S. soldiers and diplomats seek to maintain control of the airport facility while facilitating the evacuation of thousands of Americans and foreign nationals, as well as at least some vulnerable Afghans. Meanwhile, on the outside, an improvised network of veterans, former diplomats, humanitarian workers, and civil society groups has been desperately working to help vulnerable Afghans evade the Taliban, get into the airport, and onto a flight to safety before it is too late. For today's podcast, I sat down with three people who have been closely involved in this latter effort. Susanna Cunningham of the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service, Camille Mackler of the Truman Center for National Policy and the Immigrant Advocates Response Collaborative, and Chris Purdy of Human Rights First. We discuss what's happening on the ground at Kabul Airport, what's likely to come next for those who make it through, and what the Biden administration needs to do to save more lives while there's still time. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 20th, the state of the Kabul airlift. Chris, since you're uh, back with us now, thank you so much for joining us. Let me start with you. Can you give us a sense of the current state of play at Kabul International Airport right now. We know this has become the focus of this effort to evacuate vulnerable Afghans, and not just vulnerable Afghans, also uh, American citizens, American employees, uh, citizens and employees of other countries as well. What does the situation look like on the ground there, and how has it been changing over the last few days? It's, it's very chaotic still. I mean, we are four days into this right now. There are real signs of desperation. There 
are crowds of people, frankly, going from gate to gate based on rumors being harassed by the Taliban. And when I say crowds of people, I don't mean, you know, a couple dozen here and there. I'm talking thousands of people. The, the Taliban are dispersing them uh, through sporadic gunfire, and that is causing civilian casualties. It's also leading to uh, conflicts with U.S. military forces running gun battles throughout the, the area. So this is it is still a very kinetic and chaotic situation. And uh, it doesn't look like, I understand the State Department is trying to work with CENTCOM to, to get that under control, but it, it, as of right now, our understanding is it's, it's, it's not there. So tell us, what, what is the process that's being put in place at the airport by the U.S. forces and allied forces that are in control to the extent we have one? We understand they've secured a perimeter. Uh, there are gates that are being manned with some effort. I think we've all seen pictures of the razor wire that's been set up as a kind of strategic barrier. But what is, to the extent they can, the level of order, order organization and structure that they're trying to bring to the situation there? They're prioritizing uh, U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents and some SIVs, and they are essentially trying to act as uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents at Kabul Airport to get people into what is effectively U.S. territory, right? So we own Kabul Airport. There is some poor, you know, you know, 19-year-old on the front line right now that is going through people's paperwork and trying to make sure they are who they say they are and they're bringing, they're bringing them in. Um, and then from there, they're putting them on flights and they're flying them out to third countries. That is not a sustainable solution. Uh, I understand the State Department is surging resources, they're surging consular officers, they're bringing uh, a senior uh, administration official on the ground to help organize this, the situation. But at the end of the day, the, the process is, is, there, is not streamlined. And if this is gonna get resolved anytime quickly, it needs to be broad. And I understand that a lot of people in the administration are very afraid of just letting anybody on, on a flight, but we need to stop checking people's papers at, at, at the front. Uh, because people are burning their documents, they're burning their, their visas, they're, you know, they're, they're destroying things, the very uh, requirements that we are looking for to guarantee them a flight on the ground. I can confirm, I just got off the phone with um, a senior official at the State Department, and I can confirm last night they've been trying to uh, work around some of the measures that the Taliban have put in place. So the Taliban have basically said, you know, we're not going to be uh, letting anybody who doesn't have a U.S. visa or doesn't have uh, or is an American citizen into uh, the, the airport. The State Department has tried to find some workaround ways. That has not been successful and it is essentially causing uh, mass uh, flows of individuals from the city to the airport. I, I can't overstate this enough. I am not a hyperbolic person. Um, the people on this call will tell you it is a mess. And uh, I, I'm not trying to tell the administration how to do it, but they need to find a way very quickly to have a secure egress point from uh, the Kabul area, whether it's Hkaya, whether it's a different location or whatever. But right now, this, there, there, is, there is no process. Susanna, let me pivot to you to build off of a point that I think Chris has started walking us down. And that is that there are a lot of people trying to get out of Afghanistan right now through Kabul International Airport, Hkaya for Hamid Karzai International Airport, I think is the proper name. Walk us through this a little bit. Who are the different groups and what are the different types of barriers and experiences that they're having? We can, I think we can set aside, we understand there are American personnel, American citizens, uh, and from other uh, allied governments, foreign allied governments trying to make their way there. That's one category seems to be the focus of a lot of U.S. and foreign government efforts right now. But then, of course, there's a whole range of Afghans that fit into different sorts of categories and levels of treatment. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit and give us a sense about what they're experiencing on the ground? Yeah, I mean, so that's a difficult uh, question because of part part of what um, Chris explained, which is if the Taliban is setting up checkpoints on the road to the airport, the Kabul airport, 
and they're looking specifically for paperwork and people fear for their lives if they're identified as having a special immigrant visa or any level of vulnerability or, or, or just a matter of uncertainty of what the Taliban checkpoint officers would do. They're burning their identification. And so one of the ways that we would distinguish between, well, this person gets in under this processing and this person gets under that processing, that would be identified in their paperwork, which they're destroying. And they're destroying it so as not to be prevented from going to the airport or not to be killed on the way to the airport. So in many ways, the discussion of of who and how they're coming would be somewhat moot. For we do know, obviously, LPRs, legal permanent residents, and U.S. citizens are presenting themselves, and even those are having significant problems at getting to the airport, are putting themselves, they described that they felt that their lives were at risk in the crowds trying to get at the airport. You've seen scenes that might illustrate why. And then, you know, if you do want to understand P1 or P2 or SIVs, Essentially, P1 is the UN, UNHCR, or the U.S. government vis-a-vis U.S. embassies or international NGOs who are appointed to refer folks for resettlement, refugees, people who are designated already as refugees, meaning they went through the refugee status determination process already, which is long and arduous. And they've been, um, one of these three groups has sent this on to the U.S. government for referral for the refugee program. P2 is a very narrow scope of vulnerable populations that are referred by their employers. And then finally, special immigrant visas are are interpreters, translators, people who worked with the U.S. mission who are are vulnerable because of their affiliation with us. There's a whole other group of people that you and I would just naturally know about. Like, what about women's rights defenders that didn't work for an American organization but are well known for their work in Afghanistan? What about journalists, freelance journalists who were covered, you know, sort of information about the Taliban that they weren't happy about. All of these people are vulnerable. And so when when Chris says processing and how they're coming through, it's past the processing moment. Um, We have very artful immigration groups. I'm representing um, as a fellow for Truman National Security Project right now, but my day job is leading congressional advocacy for a major resettlement agency. You know, we usually like nuance. At this point, we're looking at a Saigon level evacuation. You don't check their papers. You don't act as CBP officers. You get vulnerable people who are at threat of death onto planes to a third country where you then evaluate, you know, which process, which particular avenue they're going to come through. After leaving Vietnam in 1975, we got 130,000 Vietnamese evacuees to Guam, and then we processed them on that state before they moved on. This needs to be considered at that level, if not more problematic, because there's no water option to get people out. There's only flights. So that airport is the way out because most borders are closed. So this is when we mean you think of Saigon, think of this as a moment that we'll look back and there will be a new name for evacuations when the U.S. withdraws from a country. So, uh, Suzanne, let me follow up on one aspect of that. And I, Chris and Camille, you weigh in at this as well, because I'm not sure who might have the best sense of this, which is that you, you made this point, which I think is really important. Kabul airport is the only way out right now. And that's not just for American efforts, although Americans primarily seem to be the ones in control of the facility, although there are other foreign troops there. I know there's British contingent, I believe German troops as well, can have access and some degree of control there. But of course, anybody who has a private flight or private airlines or other groups want 
to be able to use this airport because it's the only way out if you're a Kabul private citizen or if you're a private organization trying to bring people out. We know early on when the U.S. took control of the airport, they shut down those private flights for, by my understanding, it was a relatively brief period. I understand they are happening again, but how are they fitting into this picture? Is it truly a limited channel? I know a lot of international airlines and things are not operating, uh, so I think we're primarily talking about charter flights. What is the medley of routes out that are being channeled through Kabul airport, or is it really at this point primarily a USG and foreign government dominated channel? So we can look at the public statements that the the government, the US government has made. Press Secretary Kirby yesterday in a briefing reiterated numbers that he's been sharing recently, which is that um, the US military has the capacity on the military side alone to move 5,000 people a day. They had, he said in yesterday's press briefing that the airport inside of the airport is completely secured by the U.S. military. These are his statements. And yet we only moved 2,000 individuals yesterday. If we keep this pace, we leave 3,000 a day of vulnerable populations in Kabul with no means of exit. Um, so that's first. That's what's happening. On the commercial side, in briefings, Pentagon and briefings yesterday, they also mentioned that while military flights were moving out on the north military side of the airport, commercial flights were inconsistent. We also know that the FAA said yesterday that they would permit U.S. airlines to fly in and out commercial flights uh, to the Kabul airport. So we have that kind of scope, but we getting on the ground information that commercial flights are running Currently, we don't see evidence that that is the case, that consistently that is the case, and we certainly need it. And we we look for private efforts to, to get commercial flights for the citizens who do have visas, because we have people with visas at the airport unable to fly because they can't get to through inside of the airport. And, and it's not clear whether, in addition, the commercial flights would be there for them to take. Camille, let me come to you. You know, a lot of the barrier we've been talking about so far are in very different circumstances, very familiar ones to people working in immigration and refugee law, the visa process, the SIV process. And these are processes that in the best of circumstances can take a very, very long time, uh, of which there are a lot of administrative and bureaucratic barriers in place. How are they interfacing with this very urgent situation on the ground? Are they simply still being an obstacle? Are there efforts being made to circumvent some of these? Uh, I know Chris and Susanna both hit on uh, the need to essentially move these processes further steps down in the process, get people to a safe location, and then get and pursue these legal processes. Um, But what steps have been taken in the current status quo to try and alleviate some of the pressures of those, or or are they still just a, a big bureaucratic bottleneck? Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit the nail right on the head with that. I mean, that's sort of the almost the crisis to come or or the potential crisis to come because this is about to collide with a very broken, very decimated, very under-resourced and pressured immigration system, which is already by design sort of set up to make anybody, especially including those who are seeking protection, fail. That, I think, is the next step. I mean, right now, the effort of the last however many days or hours at this point, right, since Saturday is really to get everybody out. Um, And Chris sort of hinted at that earlier. We don't want the military playing the CBP agent at the airport. Like, just get everybody out and we'll triage and we'll figure out what's going to happen next in terms of the legal needs and the legal statuses that they need to enter the United States um, and remain in the United States. But the more we lean on third countries, the more problematic that is for a lot of obvious reasons. You know, we saw a very, very small window into what that might look like with the roughly 1,200 who made it to Fort Lee before 
before the crisis really hit, before Kabul fell and, and the Taliban regained control of the country, that started, Suzanne and Chris can correct me, but from memory, it started late July into early August. And those were individuals who are very much in the late stages of the visa. And also many of those individuals were not the principal applicants. They were family members who were coming to the U.S. to join principal applicants, many of whom were already in the U.S. And even that was quite confusing, although I did see the immigration agencies take a more affirmative role in the process, actually going to Fort Lee to process the applications and trying to speed things up as much as possible in a way that I've never seen before. And that certainly is probably not scalable, you know, to the levels that we need it to be now. So I think a lot of the answers to that question hinge on how many come to the U.S. directly or potentially, you know, there are still options available in U.S. territory such as Guam and such versus how much we're going to rely on third countries and what happens in those third countries. But the U.S. immigration system is designed to lose people. It is designed to confuse them and make it hard for them to understand what the expectations and the requirements are. There's no right to an attorney in immigration, certainly not in, in what we call the affirmative process, which is this process, right? When you're asking for a benefit, not when you're defending yourself in immigration court. And when you're asking for a benefit, you have no right to an attorney whatsoever, even one that you pay for. So you're either lucky enough to find one in time or you're forced to go through the process on your own. And that's in a normal circumstance, incredibly confusing and in a chaotic situation like this, not helped by things, you know, for example, the, the Department of State putting out what they're calling an entry pass to the airport right now for individuals who are trying to enter the airport, but that they're printing on U.S. visa templates and actually has the word visa on it. And so now individuals are confused as to whether or not they have a visa to the U.S. or just permission to enter the airport. This a point you make about third party countries, I want to bring that in here because that has been a big focus and certainly the um, kind of media reporting uh, from the State Department for the administration uh, and in, in a newspaper is talking about, okay, well, we have now Uganda on board to accept three to 4,000 people, Philippines are on board, Kuwait. You know, what is the state of this effort and what exactly is happening with people when they go there? Of course, they're going to enter a legal process that they are not going to go through, as you noted, at a, at a firm time uh, frame uh, and may not get through at all in terms of resettlement to the United States. What happens to people stuck in that circumstance then? Does it essentially become a matter of local immigration law and refugee law? What is the role in the overall picture that these foreign kind of third party stopping points are playing in this process? I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, com- it becomes a matter of what those third countries, what their immigration laws allow if they have deportation agreement with the you know the current government of Afghanistan and what kind of protections they offer you know whether they're signatories to the UN refugee convention or to any sort of international protocols regarding how we treat and protect migrants but ultimately immigration anywhere is always viewed as a sovereign matter first and so it really does come down to what those third country governments are going to decide to do. And that's why from the start, we've been pushing for, and I mean, before, long before any of this started, right, starting in April, when when the withdrawal was announced, we've been pushing at a minimum to have these individuals brought to Guam, where they can have their U.S. immigration options resolved and have access to all of the protections and all of the benefits that our laws might offer. Camille, if I could just add, jump in there, you know, you bring up a really good point, and um, the the 
Well, the first thing I want to say is Camille talked about, you know, whether or not a country has deportation agreements with the current country of Afghanistan. And I think what is important for us all to keep in context is that the country that we knew of Afghanistan on, on Friday does not exist. And so there are a lot of people who are saying, well, what if their travel documents are expired? Well, everybody's travel documents from Afghanistan is expired now because the country is no longer there to, to, to enforce it. And so the, the time for nuance in this administration is over. The time they had months, months and months and, and weeks, and, and, we, and I'm, I'm not here to say I told you so, but we, we told them that this was coming and the time for them to figure out the process to do this in, a, in an orderly way is over. And they just need to get people on planes and figure it out later. And that whether they go to a, to a third country or not, I understand that uh, that you know there are, are reports of uh, of planes of Afghans heading to uh, third countries that have been turned around or diverted to different uh, different landing strips because those countries don't want these Afghans in their country. And frankly, uh, you know, it is not their responsibility. This is not Kuwait's fault. This is not Qatar's fault. This is America's fault. And it's our responsibility to fix this. And we have a precedent for it. We did, we've done it before. And you know, I'm sorry that it's gonna require some extra effort on behalf of the US government to bring these people to US territory and sort it out. And you know, I'm sorry that they're gonna that their asylum officers are gonna have to do more asylum claims, but they had an opportunity to fix this and they didn't. And I'm and I, I'm getting a little passionate here because uh, I'm running on five days of very little sleep. But uh, you know, this is this is our responsibility and we need to fix it. And I would just, I want to hit on two things. I also, you know, Camille talked about that the the immigration system is specifically built in order to catch people and snag them so they can't move forward in the process. Like it's, it's prohibitive. It's, and and it's intentionally so. And, you know, this is often a a thing we talk about and Camille and I have spoken about this is that the, the, you'll hear the line, the immigration system, you know, we all know the U.S. immigration system is broken. It's not broken. It's sabotaged. And we need to start calling it that. And then the second is, you know, at this point, you know, towards Chris's the uh, very, I think, deservedly passionate statement that the U.S. government had times to do this thoughtfully and to have the equivalent of processing and deciding which visa and how you're going to do this right now. It's an open, you know, we're looking at an open combat theater on, on the ground. And that moment calling for it seems tone deaf, for, for lack of a better word. And, and so... When we talk about the idea that we've taken people previously from in Vietnam to Guam um, and that they were processed there, you know, we did that through humanitarian parole, which I just want to quote because I know that you have so many lawyers in your audience, um, specifically the INA, um, the, the 212D5 that says that DOD, uh, when approved by DOD and authorized by DHS, parole permits uh, for aliens to enter the United States without a visa. The, that as a reference specifically to the idea that DOD can offer uh, humanitarian parole to Afghans with DHS rubber stamping. So there is DOD has the power, according to the INA, to offer humanitarian parole to all these individuals with a rubber stamp from DHS. We could get them on planes, military planes, take them to a third country, take them to Fort Lee, DOD would have the power to do that right now with a rubber stamp from DHS. And that has so far not been, people didn't believe that that was possible. I think we need to be very clear-eyed that State Department's processing skills right now are very limited in its impact to save lives. And that, that, that I think DOD needs to be treating this like a humanitarian disaster where it's bodies on planes, bodies to a safe place. And frankly, I think that this is important 
the Pentagon sharing and backsliding and saying that first that they were going to take 30,000 Afghan parolees and now they're going or evacuees and and then 22,000 were going to go to the U.S., come here to the U.S. And then since they've said, well, what we mean is that we have the capacity to take 22,000 to the U.S. And the next day they're saying what we mean is we have the capacity to take up to. I want you to notice this very um, concerning backsliding on the, the amount of people we say that we're actually going to, going to bring to safety, including wartime allies. I think it's deeply concerning. Chris, let me come back to you to push on another part of this. Um, although, again, I'd welcome Camille or Susanna to jump in as well, which is that there is a sphere that is under control of the United States, and that's the airport. But there is also a barrier that is being administered by the Taliban on the other side of the razor wire. The Biden administration appears to have gotten had some luck engaging with the Taliban around certain aspects of evacuation around American citizens. Um, at least the president certainly said in his remarks last night, look, the Taliban has said they're allowing Americans through. Uh, and that appears to be the case, not with uniform success, but as a, at a more general matter. Certainly there are reports of American citizens being harassed, but not at the level of Afghan citizens. But what space is there for engagement with the Taliban to facilitate for these efforts? Are they likely to allow large-scale exits through their checkpoints on outside of the airport, which is in their control? And is there anything to be done about that diplomatically or otherwise? And then more importantly, I think that the bigger question here, and, and some of the harder question, is that we are on a limited time frame. It doesn't seem like it's a, a forever scenario. The president last night said we are willing to stay past August 31st if necessary to evacuate. I think American citizens, what he said, that's past the original withdrawal deadline. But we don't know what the level of tolerance is for the Taliban, for our presence at the airport, nor uh, what may require to expand that level of tolerance or push back. So how is that relationship playing into this? And, and what should we expect? To it, or do we just not know? Is it all in a known at this point? Well, I think that what I'll say on that is that the Taliban are an entity that up until a week and a half ago, two, maybe two weeks, had not governed a, a metropolitan area. Right. They 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 did own some some small towns and some 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 provinces, but it wasn't until very recently, within the last two weeks, they started taking over major metropolitan areas and municipal and the municipal environment and where they've had to start governing. And so we could tell the Taliban leadership everything we want. But the question remains is, do they have the capacity to have the command control from top to bottom to implement their promises? So if the Taliban says, oh, yes, we're going to offer a humanitarian corridor down this this area and these are where people can go. We won't molest uh, American citizens, visa holders, or fleeing Afghans. Will the people on the ground respect that? And what we have seen so far is that they will not. Uh, they will respect it in a limited fashion, but um, there are lots of reports of uh, Taliban checkpoints shaking down American citizens for money, uh, requesting money be, be wired in order to pass through the, 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 this checkpoint. And look, it's not in the Taliban's interest, the, the leadership anyways, to be seen in this light. And so if they can't even control their own troops on the ground in Kabul, when all the world is looking at this one, uh, this one city, uh, I, I don't know how long they're going to be able to effectuate any type of real lasting cohesive peace treaty uh, with us uh, to, to, to get our, our people out. I think Chris really addressed the side of what we think we can expect um, based on the limited information we have now, you know, now that the Taliban is governing all of Afghanistan except for the Kabul airport. I think I just want to add this. I think part of the calculation that we're seeing from Biden's ABC News interview yesterday was saying that, you know, you mentioned that he committed to stay to get U.S. citizens out. What about legal, legal permanent residents? And for wartime allies, 
I just want to draw out what that means, uh, not just the idea of, of not saving refugees. There are veteran American veterans who have been working with their, their interpreters and translators for years, for years uh, in, in a program that was the SIV program that was always deeply troubled with inefficacies, in, in illogical denials that were then overturned. One in six appeals were overturned. One in six after rejections, appeals were overturned. The appeals process was over, overturned the rejections in one out of six of, of the cases, right? So we had a, some deeply serious problems and then significant delays, right? That it's over three years to go through the SIV program uh, as an applicant on average, even the Congress mandated to be nine months. That means that there are American veterans who have been working for three years and in some case more because that was the average with their interpreters to try to get here that's had terrible systematic problems. So if the Biden administration thinks that somehow the news cycle or the veteran groups are going to get over this once he's able to effectively withdraw US, US forces, I, it's a bad read. And journalists who've been covering Afghanistan for years and have their own reporters and people, sources that they've been using for years are also well aware. So that's not gonna disappear. I, I don't know who in the West Wing is reading them in on this or what, at what secretary level they think that this is just gonna go away. It's not. Yeah, I think the point that Susanna is making is so critically important. <laughs> especially the reaction in the military and veteran community. And, and Chris wrote a piece of, uh, I think a week ago, that was so eloquent that sort of summed up, I think some of those feelings and I certainly don't want to put him on the spot on this. But also to go back to the August 31st deadline, you know, I, it reminded me so much of the, the, the address that the president made. Uh, I can't remember the exact date, but in mid-July, the first time he addressed publicly, or maybe it was the second time he addressed publicly the Afghan withdrawal. And one of the first questions he got from journalists that time, which notably he took none this past week, but one of the questions was, do you trust the Taliban as a partner in this? And he got really angry um, and and sort of yelled back, no, of course they don't trust the Taliban. And it, it's a little astonishing to now see him, you know, almost speaking of the Taliban as, as a negotiating partner. And, you know, they've given us this August 31st date and, you know, we're, we're, we're working within these parameters and, why Why do we think that they're going to honor? I mean, we already know they're not. We already know that they're in the crowds outside the airport shooting guns, chain whipping, you know, individuals who, are, who have connections to to the U.S., um, looking for evidence and in times going to the homes of individuals who are known to have worked with the U.S. And and I think it's to, to sort of loop back to Susanna's point, the military community and the veteran community, which Chris can speak so much more on behalf of than myself, obviously, feels such a sense of betrayal, but it's not just them, you know, everyone who was sort of invested over the last two decades into helping rebuild Afghanistan. I mean, the women and the girls and everyone who supported them to see what's happening there is dramatic. And this is a serious misread on the president's part. If he thinks that he's just going to keep going and publicly stating this was the right decision and you have to believe me, and he's just going to sort of convince us all that that was the case because it's not. And I think he's seriously underestimating the deep, deep, deep sense of betrayal that many of us are feeling as a result of what we're seeing play out right now in Kabul and in Afghanistan. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. 
And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, Chris, let me turn to you actually on that, if that's okay. Part of the thread that eventually connected us, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say, uh, is that we're all members of Truman National Security Project, a group that whose members have been involved through various listservs and communications um, with a pretty incredible civil society effort to coordinate uh, information sharing, specific cases, resources towards moving towards doing what we can, what people can, uh, and I won't claim any credits, I have not been particularly involved, to move things uh, in the right direction at the airport and more broadly. Tell us a little bit about what Camille's talking about here. You know, what is it, the reaction that the communities that you see in this listserv that have been most active on this, veterans communities, former humanitarian workers, former diplomats, um, lots of people, current humanitarian workers uh, that have been involved in advocacy efforts around this for a long time are now on this effort. What have they been involved in? And, and what is the takeaway for a lot of those communities that Camille's getting at here? You know, what is the experience that they're experiencing? Um, and how does it compare to how a lot of other Americans may or may not be experiencing it? Yeah, thanks. Well, I cannot say enough about how proud I am of the entire membership of the Truman National Security Project. It has been, I mean, my inbox is crashing, <laughs> but it has been, I have never seen, you know, never seen the the, the, the Truman community rally around on, on this and take such you know, uh, efforts in, into their hands from, uh, you know, advocacy work to getting people out of of, of harm's way on the front lines in in Kabul and from you know you know providing uh, mutual aid efforts here in the United States and so I just want to say if there are any Trumanites out there thank you for all that you're doing but it's not just Truman right Truman is what is just is one part of his broader civil society that that's mobilizing I I mean you know I was on a chamber of commerce call yesterday morning and and they're eager to get engaged and uh I was on you know there there are uh, DOD contractors that are trying to figure out how to to organize and, and to help as well I, I can't remember who said if it was Camila Shasana but like this is what I'm really trying to impress as the administration is you have civil society ready to go I mean they are millions of dollars are being raised to help this there, people are desperate to figure out where they where they plug in and um I think it's it is both a, everyone I think understands the humanitarian crisis that is, that is unfolding and they want to help. And Americans have always been very good at, uh, at, at, at helping in humanitarian crisis, whether it's an earthquake or a hurricane or a refugee crisis, but it, it, it gets to something deeper. We have for the past 20 years been focused on the events of 9-11 and everything that has happened in, our, in, ours, in, in my adult life is the result of, of, of that September day. And this you know, the collapse of Afghanistan 
is, is a direct through line from, from that Tuesday morning to today. And it was brought up the, the effect that this has on veterans. You know, I will say, and I know there are veterans on this call right now. I, and I, and it just, I have to ask yourself, veterans, how many times has someone said, thank you for your service? And you kept this kind of weird feeling inside of you. And you're like, well, I don't know. I didn't really, I just kind of did what I did. And, you know, I am grateful for my 10% off at Lowe's and my, my free dinner on November 11th at uh, Applebee's. But at the end of the day, all we really wanted was to show that like what our sacrifice that our sacrifice was worth it, that we signed up to, to do something. We thought we were doing something greater than ourselves. We signed up specifically to, to try to help people. And, you know, we knew we weren't going to be in Afghanistan forever. And we knew we had to leave. And we knew we, all we wanted to do was, to, was when we left to make it a better place. And, and, and we knew that it was going to be tough when we left. Everyone was very clear about that. But what we didn't expect was the total collapse of uh, of this mission that we spent the last 20 years working towards. And we didn't expect, frankly, the callous indifference of the people in power to that. And that they, you know, when, 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 when people in power and when the president of the United States gets up on national television and essentially blames the people who are fleeing for their lives, people that I served alongside of, that people on this call served alongside of, that affects us really deeply. And and it is why you're seeing so many people rallying right now and trying to trying to to solve this crisis. Chris, thank you so much for articulating that. I just I can't say how much I appreciate that for so many different reasons. And I just so many of the problematic narratives that were delivered in Biden's speech, and including the idea that like the, the Afghan military has to be willing to fight and stand up for the country they want. The Afghan military, which lost 66,000 forces, each year lost more forces than America did in all 20 years combined. Uh, 46,000 uh, Afghan civilians died. It's, a, it's callous to say that they, they need to have sacrificed, you know. So I'll just say that first. And then second, those kind of narratives really hurt the idea of any future humanitarian support or women's education support from the State Department or, or the government or Congress approving funding for such an effort in the future, which means it really does, it does, it feels like a that Marshall moment where you just leave and you never look back and and you could have made a difference and you didn't. And and then this this issue that Chris brings out about um, veterans, you know, I work for a resettlement agency. I worked on refugee related and conflict-related advocacy for my entire career. And so yeah, 17 years ago, was working on, began working on it. And I was working with veterans. I then, in 2008, started working with a group of veterans that created something called The List, like Iraqi uh, interpreters and translators that work with them. The reason I belong to the Truman National Security Project is because I stood up a legal organization that had me working directly with U.S. veterans who were trying to get their interpreters and translators open. Through the course of the post 9-11 world and our wars, the immigration community and the veteran community have been integrated in helping in efforts with rated to Iraqis and Afghans. That's not going to go away. So like refugee organizations and immigration organizations are looking at their veteran partners that they work with for 13 years and realizing the moral injury that this administration is saying that veterans can bear. We wanted to do, we say we still want to do so much about the number of Vietnam vets who experience homelessness, drug addictions, untreated PTSD, 
One of the things that they carried was moral injury for not only what happened in Vietnam, but who they didn't save when we left. And, and I know this because my own neighbor was a Vietnam vet and a Vietnamese family who he helped save in Houston, Texas. That has a giant uh, Vietnamese population, refugee population. There's no overstating the relationship that interpreters and translators have with their, their military service members that they work with. And then the, the overtime integration with immigration officials who they were working with very closely on their, their translators' cases. It's, it's devastating to see what's happening in Afghanistan. And to me, it's also heartbreaking to think about the impact that we'll have on the people that we've been working with uh, for over a decade in the veteran community. And I just want to share, if anybody needs to talk who's a veteran, I just want to share the hotline of 1-800-273-8255 because um, you're hearing it from a lot of vets where they need someone to talk to. So I hope they reach out to each other. Yeah, and not to take it into a different direction entirely, but you know, Susanna and I are also immigration advocates and I'm an immigration attorney. I've been representing asylum seekers and people seeking protection for a long time. And we both kind of went through some pretty terrible four years in the previous administration. And this president came into office saying he was bringing humanity and decency back. I mean, his words, right? Humanity and decency back to, to our immigration system. And I don't see the humanity or the decency in the decisions that he's making right now. I wanna bring the conversation, we don't have a little bit of time left back to the experience in Afghanistan, what's happening there. Because this, of course, while we're looking this incredibly urgent moment in the face, this is, even for the people who get through it, just the first step in what is a long process that hopefully ends in safety somewhere overseas, hopefully in the United States or somewhere else overseas. Um, but there's a lot of steps that happen next. And I think it's important people know about those. And I, I want to talk to you all briefly about them. So it, for those people who get through, for the Afghans who get through, first, I want to come to you, Camille. Talk to us a little bit about what the legal processes they are going to face. Let's say they make it to uh, Uganda or Kuwait or one of these safe harbors, maybe maybe eventually to, to Guam if that becomes an option. What is the sort of timeline and life going to be like for that interim period where they're working through these legal challenges, these legal processes, um, of which there are, are a number of possibilities depending on, on their background and what their, what their experience has been with the United States. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what is going to come next when this immediate crisis passes in one direction or the other for the people who actually do make it through to the other side? Yeah, I think that's going to be very fact dependent. You know, the individuals who had SIV applications pending and who were fairly along in the process, at least have had an interview or such, we saw them move pretty quickly through Fort Lee, really actually a matter of days. For those who are further along in the SIV process and qualify for an SIV, I mean, SIVs are actually very limited in scope for individuals who worked as interpreters and who face harm as a result of that work and who can get letters and other supporting evidence from their military counterparts in the U.S. military and such. There's, there's a lot of requirements, but for those who do qualify for a special immigrant visa and SIV visa, that could take well, who knows? I mean, in, in the past, I think at, at previous administration, it was about four years. So, you know, they're saying that they're surging resources now to get through those petitions. They do seem to be accelerating from what the processing was over the last four years, but certainly not, not any necessarily faster than it was before that um, under the Obama administrations, the Bush, the Clinton. So, so hopefully that'll accelerate and we're looking at, you know, a few months immigration petitions take an enormous amount of time. There's a lot of background security checks that need to happen. 
there's interviews, there's a lot of processing that go through an agency that is incredibly backlogged as it is, both because of the lack of resources of the last few years, as well as the shutdowns due to the pandemic. But hopefully we're looking at, you know, a matter of months, not years for those individuals. There's also been a process established for those who don't qualify for an SIV visa, but do have a fear of harm in Afghanistan through the refugee resettlement process, which uh, Susanna was addressing earlier with the P1, P2 categories. They've announced that they're going to open those up to Afghans who are facing harm, but they haven't really set up a process and they're still ramping up refugee processing right now. So I think historically in the past, and Susanna can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think generally in the past that took at least two years once somebody had been confirmed for resettlement in the U.S. So, and that number is skewed because, you know, uh, that wasn't my experience. You couldn't move people that quickly. Um, yeah. I believe that number is one that we, we, we use a lot within the immigration field, but it means that once it's gone, it's already been referred to the U S so getting through the pipeline to be referred. I mean, the average from my experience, standing up a resettlement agency in the middle East, it's a legal resettlement, legal aid clinic. Um, it was around four to, to six years in terms of our clients, because there's just so many, so few would ever make it through. Yeah. And then for the rest, those who won't qualify for an SIV and won't qualify for the refugee resettlement pipeline, that just kind of depends on a number of factors. If they're not in the U.S. or in Guam or anywhere they can avail themselves of U.S. law, then it's going to depend on whether they have an ability to immigrate to the United States through regular channels, right? Family petitions, employment visas, work petitions, things like that. Um, That process will take however long it it takes. It's Like I said, it's incredibly backlogged right now. Um, the backlogs are only growing as the pandemic continues to force the closures of both the border and, and the consulates abroad and such. And then for those who are in the U.S., they may have those options available to them. They may be able to apply for asylum. They may, you know, it's possible the, the administration could make a decision to sort of fast track those asylum applications if they chose. But the, the asylum process right now is in a bit of a state of flux, but generally speaking, I'd say it takes about from the time you file your petition to the time or application, I'm sorry, to interview and having a decision is usually, I'd say within six months, or it was pre-pandemic, now it's sort of all been blown apart. Um, but then if you're not granted at the asylum office, then you go to have a hearing in front of an immigration judge and immigration court, and that process can take years. But that presupposes that you're already in the United States. Well, so it's me, a very complicated answer. No, absolutely. But I think, uh, you know, the complication and the level of challenge that are yet to come are important for people to know about this process. Susanna, let me take, come to you for what is another important part of this process. And that is for those who do get to the point where they get to resettle the United States, what that looks like. You know, I think those of us who grew up near refugee communities, I grew up in Northern Virginia, where there's a very large Vietnamese refugee community, among other refugee communities. And yeah, lots of classmates and friends whose family came from that experience. It's a really unique experience, and it's implemented by the federal government in coordination with a number of agencies, including your 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 day job, as you described it, uh, Lutheran Immigration uh, Refugee Refugee Resettlement Services. Excuse me. Tell us about that process, what it's going to look like, and and what the resettlement end of this is going to look like for the Afghan population that is able to to get that far. Thanks for asking that, because I always love that story. 
Yeah. And, and for what it's worth, it's Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. But no, no, uh, I always I'm always like, you're you're in the vicinity. This is great. It's Lutherans, refugees, resettlement. I actually really love this part. And it actually, of course, makes this all the more devastating because the part where they come to the U.S., it's just the most satisfying work. And maybe it's because I grew up in Houston, a city that was had just massive like holding out of the center during the um during the oil crisis, like downtown was abandoned and I, and we lived downtown and, and immigrants moved into our neighborhood, including Vietnamese immigrants with their um, American veteran family member. That's what they call them. And then just immigrants all over the community that actually brought it back to life. There were restaurants, there were all of these, like it literally did feel like it was resurrected. And now it's, you know, my parents' neighborhood is, you know, there's a lot of young kids who want to move there because it's got so many great restaurants and all of these things. The, the story of refugees coming on the side is, I mean, here's the system. The U.S. decides uh, that they're going to resettle someone. Niger agencies get together and say, we have these linguistic or uh, housing sort of capacities for this population of refugees we can accept. And literally every two weeks they get together and resettlement agencies are like, yeah, we have the capacity to take this, like this family or that family. And then they show up in cities and there is a robust network of faith-based organizations, of civil society, of community sponsors. I mean, it, when you think about the best of America, it literally is, if you, if you are struggling for meaning in where America is morally, like being a part of resettlement is just some of the most satisfying part of it because the earnest and joyous welcome exists. And every once in a while I would step into that world to try to remind myself like, oh, we're, we're gonna be okay. And that's one of the reasons that Camille highlighted that the last administration was so difficult. And this administration has only accepted 4,000, know, 6,000 refugees in, by, in this fiscal year and the fiscal year's ending in September, right? So we don't have many refugees. We are not sure if we're going to have many Afghan SIVs, P2s, whatever. We don't think we're not sure if we're going to have vulnerable populations from Afghan showing up on U.S. soil, period. So, you know, that's the inverse, which is, you know, how beautiful the story can be. And yet we're not we're not making it happen. And that's just a double tragedy. So we're almost out of time, um, but I want to come to each of you with one last kind of two questions, I suppose, been interlocked, and that is, where do we have to go from here? Where do we have to go from our current state uh, to get to the happy story that Susanna is describing? If that is the goal, as I think the Biden administration has said it is, is to get as many people as we can to safety. And I think as many, many Americans hope is the case. And I want to ask you first, what are the policy things that have to happen? I think a lot of you already talked about the need to just start moving people out. Um, but is there more, is that the primary focus that needs to be objective number one, or are there other changes that need to come? And then for those of us who are outside of government, who are private citizens, but um, who care deeply about this, who feel affected by this, what is it private citizens can do right now to help contribute to this cause and these sorts of efforts being pursued by whether civil society organizations or uh, local organizations, any other channel to provide assistance? Yeah, I could, I could probably talk with that. Um, so as far as the policy implications, it actually goes hand in hand with the, the, the second thing you said there. There needs to be a through line between civil society and the U.S. government so that we can help. So that 
we can help them in the administration uh, with what's going on right now. Uh, and we can tell them what, what, what's going on in the United States and in Afghanistan and how we can resolve issues that are happening. Um, it's also gonna be really important for on the back end. This, this is gonna flip, as Susanna and Camille mentioned, there's gonna be a massive refugee outflow that's gonna, that we're gonna need, that the administration is gonna need to lean heavily on, on civil society. So from a policy aspect, open flow of communication, a through line of communication between civil society and military, it needs to be a mass evacuation, regardless of status, regardless of paperwork, and uh, that they need to keep that airport open or some sort of exfil uh, op operation open in, in Kabul as long as possible. So those are the the three things. Um, and then I don't want to you know step on anyone's toes, but as you know, as far as what a private citizen can do, it feels helpless right now to to not have anything you can do. And I know, you know, Americans are, are guilty and we're guilty spenders. And so if you want to donate, I would encourage you to donate to groups like LIRS and other refugee resettlement agencies, because man, are they going to need it in a couple of weeks? I can go next because I was actually going to say also what Chris just ended on, which is refugee resettlement agencies have been completely depleted over the last few years. They lost their funding as the numbers of refugees the U.S. was prepared to accept went down and they're going to need so many resources. So donate, contact your local refugee resettlement agency and see what they might need. I mean, a lot of times they need very specific items. I wouldn't organize a donation drive without talking to them first, you know, because they know the families that they're expecting to arrive and they know what the needs are going to be. Sometimes it's a crib, sometimes it's winter clothing for children age eight through 15. You never know, but I think in terms of what you can do, be ready to welcome them, be ready to show them what the best of America is, you know, be ready to show them that once they're here, they're, they're in their new home, it's incredibly traumatic, many of them, you know, didn't plan on leaving their home, right, they didn't plan on making their life in a new country half a world away, and I think anything that we can do to bolster that spirit of welcome is probably the, the best that individual citizens can do right now. And in terms of policy, look, I mean, we can talk about, you know, Chris said, we don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so, or we told you so, but where we are where we are, and we have to make a decision now how we move forward and our policymakers and our elected leaders have to make a decision of how we move forward from this. And I think it's all up to all of us to make sure they understand what decisions we expect from them. This is not a divisive or divided issue. There's been bipartisan support the whole way through this. You know, Congress showed its intent to, to help allies when they passed the legislation that created the SIV visas in the first place. You know, so go to the protests, call your local elected officials or, or your representatives of Congress, write letters to the president, to the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, whomever, which, whatever way you have of participating in civic life, do that to make sure that they understand that we are not okay with the policy decisions that have been made and that led us to this point and that we expect better from today moving forward. Thanks y'all. And, and I, I put LRS's um, website up there for this. I, I wanna say that um, we work very closely with all resettlement agencies and uh, we're very grateful for our partnerships. So please consider any resettlement agency that's out there in the US, not just LIRS, but here's that one. And then also, if you would like to sponsor a family, this is a form you can fill out and they'll figure out how to connect you with family sponsorship. But I wanna say something, You know, those are the kind of things you might normally hear in a crisis that feels impossible. And it's a, such a wonderful, productive way to take pain and loss and, and put it someplace where there might be a seed of hope. I do wanna say Lawfare's community is a little, little different than most. So I wanna say something to your audience, which is in Vietnam, the people that were saved 
they were often saved by extraordinary acts of individuals who um, used their boat or military officials who decided to, to put not without, they didn't vet folks, they just put folks on boats. There were also individuals of, of State Department officials who actually got folks on planes. There's an amazing Atlantic article that describes two gentlemen's efforts just to get private planes into Saigon and get them out as fast as possible. So I, I wanna say that, that this is the moment where the incredibly well accessed community and readers of lawfare can play a role. I know that it's unclear whether or not um, more planes can get into the commercial side. We know two major aerospace companies who would love to provide planes and we have high level DOD contacts, but we don't have clarity that those planes can get into the commercial side. It's literally a coordination issue. So if you have people in lawfare who know a way to get those commercial flights that are being offered by aerospace companies into the commercial side, please reach out. You know, uh, list at evacuateourallies.org is receiving individual Afghan uh, case uh, information, but you can also use that to say, hey, I have a contact. Um, and I know that I was contacted by someone I haven't spoken, someone just texted me and it showed up on my screen with, who I haven't talked to in 10 years, who's worked at the State Department. Um, so for the unique audience at Lawfare, please remember that individual acts of assistance and heroism save lives in Vietnam and can here. And then the final is two pieces of legislation because I work on congressional affairs, so I can't not do this. The first is all of these people will be coming, who, whoever comes, they will be coming through humanitarian parole because we didn't process them, we didn't anticipate this. And by we, I mean the administration didn't process them quickly enough to get them the benefits they deserve. Meaning like when you arrive, you get placement benefits and assistance, introductions to jobs and employers, et cetera, et cetera. They're not getting that because we didn't do this right. We didn't botch this. So Congress needs to move to ensure that they provide resettlement and placement services, resettlement services to, to the Afghans who are arriving under humanitarian parole right now. And then the second, and this is important, which is we had friends in the administration this is supposed to be a place where we should have been able to access and really make the case to the administration to get Afghan allies out as soon as they you know, confirmed our withdrawal in April. And we weren't able to, to effectively make the case or get response from the administration. So we said at the time, we didn't want another Saigon. Now we have something that is something else. Kabul might be something else entirely. And that might be the next thing we, we name as a, a botched evacuation of wartime allies. There needs to be a high-ranking official in the U.S. government who it is their duty to answer the call to protect wartime allies. We're proposing an ombudsman for allies in which there will be a high-ranking official in the U.S. government who, whose job it will be to look at, uh, out for the interests of and towards the protection of wartime allies. And I, I know that there are a number of Congress members who are interested in this, and I think we need it because even if you have friends in the administration, if you couldn't make the case now, then no generation should ever have to go through this again. No generation of veterans and no generation of Af Afghan allies should ever feel like there's nobody looking out for them. Well, we unfortunately are out of time and we'll have to leave the conversation there. Uh, but I know all three of you have been working incredibly hard for the last five days, very little sleep and uh, probably will be doing the same for the next several days. So thank you so much for finding the time to join us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you for having us. Great, thanks. Thanks, Scott. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. 
To gain access to our weekly Lawfare Live online discussions, an ad-free version of our podcast and other benefits, consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shetu of Good Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.